From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Of the three branches of government, the Supreme Court seems to get the least amount of attention. It's a bit strange considering the effect the court has on everyday lives. And it's especially strange because the court, among its nine members, uh, has a bona fide pop culture icon in its ranks, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Betsy West and Julie Cohen, though, have a new film out, RBG, which looks at the life of the notorious RBG in a documentary that is at times serious, touching, and really laugh out loud funny. Betsy, Julie, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks so much, Jason. At the beginning of the the film, I mean, you just get it right out of the way of the the sort of strong emotions that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a Supreme Court justice, can elicit. Uh, You you start with the... uh, the overture is the, the Barber of Seville, I believe, and then you have these talk radio segments that say, she's a witch, <laughs> and she's very wicked, and so forth. It just got it right out in, in front, and it sort of sets the tone for some of the, you know, kind of the humor of, of, the, of the film that you've constructed. Uh, talk, let's talk a little bit about how you came to the project and how you, why you decided to take this kind of approach that is very accessible and is a sort of a documentary film, you know, watcher myself. Well, uh, you mentioned, Jason, that she had attained a new status, a pop icon status as the notorious RBG. And in 2015, Julie and I, who had both interviewed the justice for prior projects, separate projects, were talking about this. And um, we understood that there was so much more to her story than the notorious RBG, but it gave us a way into the story. People are really hungry to know about this woman. so. Uh, we said she deserves a documentary and uh, we should be the ones to do it. It feels like we've had this notorious RBG meme going around for a while. But, but Julie, it, it was only uh, you know, about five years ago that it was, it was after her descent, uh, you, and you go through this in the film, after her descent in the Shelby County case, uh, all these like kids, you know, just sort of right. said, you know, they, they, they picked up on it. Talk about that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's unusual, if not unprecedented, for a Supreme Court justice to develop uh, rock star style fan base, but that's exactly what happened, particularly on the internet. People created all kinds of memes. They've got her photo with little crowns, you know, drawn on it, uh, lots of slogans. You can't spell truth without Ruth is one of our favorites, um, all the way to the extent of people actually having faces of Ruth Bader Ginsburg tattooed on their body. That's not just like one or two people. That's kind of like a bona fide trend. It's uh-huh. happening. People are doing it. The justice doesn't like it, but people are doing it. And I, I guess one of the things, too, that comes through, it's, it's this uh, consistent theme throughout the movie, is that she has always been the sort of the straight woman, you know, in her marriage, uh, among some of her friends. You know, she likes, she kind of almost uh, cultivates this sort of straight arrow persona and reserve persona. But uh, there is this wicked sense of humor there that is, I mean, it's not as gregarious as her husband, Marty, or, or Antonin Scalia, who, whose friendship you get into. But there, I mean, it, it was right there at the beginning, it seemed. Yeah, I think that's one of the surprises for us in doing this documentary, because she is a rather shy, soft-spoken, reserved 
person. But in fact, she does have a very wicked sense of humor, and she loves to laugh. Uh, you know, one of our favorite moments in the film is when, at the end of our very serious interview with her, uh, we showed her the clip of Kate McKinnon on Saturday Night Live with that, you know, brilliant impersonation of her. And, you know, as soon as she recognized what it was, she just burst out with this belly laugh. She thought it was so funny. I mean, the fact that she has a sense of humor about herself is is quite wonderful. It, it's very meta. I mean, in, in that scene, right? I mean, she, you know, the, I think Kate McKinnon's... Uh, the, the, the big sort of drop the mic line was, I like my men like I like my Supreme Court decisions, 5-4. Right. <laughs> and, then, and that's a Ginsburg, which Justice Ginsburg, after having seen this uh, this footage, has now said that she'd actually like to say, you've been Ginsburg to her colleagues on occasion. <laughs> We're never in that room, you know, when the Supreme Court justices are conferring. To our knowledge, she has not yet told them that they've been Ginsburg, but we know she wants to say it. I, I would I could only imagine because and you, you get into also how she takes some of these pop culture ephemera that has has sprung up around her personality the t-shirts the mugs and she gives them as gifts to her colleagues including a number of people who are on the bench itself yes yes uh, she she gave a t-shirt to judge uh, Harry Edwards who was her colleague on the uh, DC, for, circuit, DC yeah. circuit and uh, then called him right up and said are you wearing it <laughs> um, she has a uh, an eye descent tote bag, which we've seen her carrying, and which when we took a picture with her, uh, she made sure that it was uh, prominently placed in the photo. She gets a kick out of all of this. I think, you know, more seriously, she's embraced uh, her status as a way to spread her message. Um, You know, her view of the law and um, of the role of the judiciary in the law. And I think it's worked. One of the um, meme creators we interviewed, Frank Chi, talked about how uh, Notorious RBG really was the first time that many young people understood the impact of the Supreme Court on their lives. And it, and it seems that the um, that she has known about this sort of performance aspect of her life for a while. Uh, one of her colleagues, I believe, is the, uh, it was her colleague at the ACLU, said that when she, you know, went into her interview with President Clinton right before she was nominated to the Supreme Court, she, you know, she says she knew that she was a performer and she dazzled. She knew she was there to dazzle. Well, you know, Justice Ginsburg, throughout her career, before before she was a Supreme Court justice, she's a determined person. She wants to get things right. We actually had the opportunity to see her perform in a number of contexts, whether she's giving a talk for law students or high school students, or even when she did a, a walk-on role as a speaking, a speaking part with the Washington National Opera, when a director is telling her how to perform, she really wants to get it right. You can just you can just feel that from her. And I think she had the same perspective. She took the same approach to her interview with President Clinton. She knew it was important. She knows when to turn it on when she needs to perform. She performed. She, you know, aced it, obviously. And she was nominated. And if you look back or you listen to the audio of the of her performance in the Supreme Court as a young lawyer arguing these gender discrimination cases before nine male justices who most of them didn't really recognize that there was such a thing as discrimination. She's clear, she's forceful, and, um, you know, very sure of herself. She, she does, she's a 
great uh, reader and studier. And uh, when she goes in to perform, she she's done the homework. So, Betsy, what you were just saying about the um, her going before the Supreme Court and arguing that she she had argued a number of these very high profile discrimination cases, and you and you both had you, you, I mean the way that you compiled the audio for that went with this. Is is just sort of it's it's kind of, it seems just sort of you know uh, seamless. I mean, how how difficult was it to go back and find all that, Julie? Well, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued six cases before the Supreme Court as a lawyer. Uh, Supreme Court arguments are uh, limited to a half an hour, so there was a a limit to the amount there was to listen to. We listened through all of them and we picked out the moments that really felt like they sang. I mean, Justice Ginsburg, who loves opera, probably wishes she was singing. She <laughs> she wasn't. But, um, you know, a lot of what happens in the Supreme Court chambers in the main uh, argument room is very legalese. She has a way of cutting right to the chase and saying things in a way that if regular people, not lawyers, are listening, it really resonates. Um, she did that even in those early arguments, and she spoke with this like unbelievable clarity that the first time she argued, her first 10-minute argument, the justices who were normally interrupting after the first sentence didn't say a darn thing. They were just riveted by her performance. Yeah, the, the the moments when you hear because we you know we don't have cameras in the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, maybe this is one of the reasons that it doesn't get a lot of, of exposure compared to the presidency and and Congress. They are just these sort of riveting moments, and it, it's a reminder too that she had this incredibly full career before she was a Supreme Court justice. I mean, obviously nobody just gets to the Supreme Court you know out of out from of nowhere, right, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean. It's not an exaggeration to say that had she not been a Supreme Court justice, she had earned a place in history for what she did uh, for gender equality, for women's rights. Um, Winning five out of six, right? She won five out of the six cases that she argued. And then ultimately, as a justice, she wrote the opinion in the VMI case, the Virginia Military Institute, Mm -hmm. um, uh, opening that up to qualified women who wanted to attend that institution. So that is the the arc of her her career in fighting for uh, women's rights is uh, profound. You get into some of how President Carter uh, went about changing the the literally the complexion and the and the the make of the gender makeup of the judiciary, uh, and and Ginsburg was one of his first picks and or, or not one of his first picks, but like toward the you know. As a federal judge, right. yes, federal he judge, nominated yeah. her, yes. Um, and and now we seem, as you've been going on your tour and and showing your movie and talking to people like me, uh, I mean, are people mentioning this how the judiciary is 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 changing under President Trump because most of the nominees are are not of uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg sort of uh, area. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. It's pretty early in the Trump administration uh, for appointments, certainly for people being confirmed and ending up on the bench. Uh, President Carter was very specific and deliberate early in his presidency that he was going to go out of his way to make the federal courts look more like America. Um, I don't think there's been as specific or broad an agenda and game plan um, laid out for by President Trump about what he pictures the judiciary to be. In President's, President Carter's case, he actually made changes that we're still feeling today. I mean, judges are on the bench for a long time, so mm-hmm. many appointees who work their way, way up are still are still serving and still making an impact on the way that law is interpreted in this country. 
There were also these like just sort of magic little moments in, I mean, particularly some of the, the, the footage from the past. I mean, you, you, you dedicate a lot of space to in your film to her confirmation hearing uh, in 1993 in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I surely would not be in this room today without the determined efforts of men and women who kept dreams alive, dreams of equal citizenship, in the days when few would listen. People like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Harriet Tubman come to mind. I stand on the shoulders of those brave people. Supreme Court justices are guardians of the Great Charter that has served as our nation's fundamental instrument of government for over 200 years. And Orrin Hatch, who you also spoke to uh, in, in, you know, for the film, specifically, um, he's been a figure in the Senate, you know, in these judiciary, you know, battles for, for years. I mean, he sort of praises her and says, you deserve a place on the Supreme Court. And then you note that it was a 96 to 3 vote, or President Clinton notes that it was a 96 to 3 vote. Uh, are we just past those times, do you think? Can you imagine <laughs> that? It is hard to imagine that in this day and age. Um, you know, President Clinton says, hey, it was partisan back then, too. But I think uh, nothing like what we are experiencing today. But it's interesting with Justice Ginsburg. We spoke to a number of conservatives, and many of them really admire her. And in some cases, really, really like her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th and that sort of came through. You, you dedicated some some time to the friendship that she has with Antonin Scalia, and how even some of her friends just say, I, "It's just a compartmentalization that I just couldn't get." <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. a number of her, of her friends uh, took that view. You know, I just don't, I just don't get it. How how to be friends um, with someone who's just on the polar opposite on some major ideological issues? Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia felt that. They they loved having each other as sparring partners. They were intellectual equals, which is quite something for, for each of them, you know, mm -hmm. both brilliant minds. Equality was the motivation for our Declaration of Independence. So my view is that these grand ideas were meant to develop as society developed. So when we included Native Americans, when we included people who were once held in bondage, when we included women as part of the political community, they were we the people. They became we the people. And I think the genius of our Constitution is that over now much more than two centuries, this notion of who counts has become ever more inclusive. But it was not the founders' notion. Nobody. Nobody thought that the Constitution would, would morph and to mean whatever five of, of, of the justices, in those days there were only five justices on the Supreme Court, but whatever a majority of the Supreme Court thought it ought to mean to keep up to... Uh, both lovers of opera, both you know, had great senses of humor. Justice Scalia was hilarious. Justice Ginsburg loves to laugh. Um, you know, there, there was a lot to connect them, which is... Sort of in, in these times, it feels like how how can that be? How can two people be friends across the aisle? It, it's I think it's really a lovely example that I wish more people would follow. There's a, a quote that you use uh, that, that you you quote. Uh, I 
I think it was at the Kennedy Center, it was Nino Totenberg's interview with, with them. And he says, what's not to like except her views of the law, of course. <laughs> it was just this just kind of magic moment. And she laughs. Yep. yep. They yep. agreed to disagree about mm-hmm. their fundamental philosophical uh, uh, point of view about the Constitution. So uh, has, has she seen the movie? Justice Ginsburg uh, saw the movie for the first time sitting in an audience of 500 people at the Sundance Film Festival. Okay. And uh, Julie and I sat very nervously across the aisle from her and did not uh, watch the screen at all. We just were <laughs> Looking for focused her. <laughs> on her reaction. And Like um, many a lawyer arguing in front of the Supreme Court, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. That nerve-wracking for us. And, um, you know, she laughed and she cried and she seemed to be totally engrossed in the story of her own life. She wasn't covering her hands or her face with her hands. And... Um, Afterward, she said that um, she really appreciated the film. She said it exceeded her expectations. We were extremely relieved. So in the course of making this documentary, is there a moment where you were around her or with her uh, where you just were just stopped in your tracks, to sort of dumbfounded out of just being the, the documentarian or the observer and just, just thought, wow. You know, I think it was the opportunity to be seeing her face very close up when she was backstage uh, rehearsing for her speaking role as the Duchess of Crackenthorpe uh, with the Washington <laughs> National Opera. And um, she was so trained on the director trying to perform the way she was told. And when she got on stage and read her lines and got her first big laugh from the audience, the look of glee on her face, and you'll see with the beautiful close-up shooting that we have of her, and the tr- sheer pleasure of being part of an opera and having the crowd uh, enjoying th- this, that moment for her was something that I, I guess we hadn't really expected to see. And I I would say the other thing is, you know, we had heard about her legendary workout routine, but there was nothing to match what it was like to be in that gym and see her go through her paces with her trainer, Brian Johnson. She's doing the the push-ups, the the real push-ups. She's lifting weights. She's doing the planks. She's doing the side planks, everything. And again, just totally trained on Bryant, not paying attention to us, to the cameras, nothing else. She's going to keep herself in shape to do the job that she loves. And both moments captured in the film, uh, reason enough to watch it. Julie, Betsy, thank you so much for coming on Political Theater. Good luck with the, with the movie. Thank, thank you, you, Jason. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories like it, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thank you for listening.